From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, a tremendous Friday to you. Coming to you live from the Phoenix Convention Center at the 2022 EWTN Radio Conference. Uh, that will culminate tomorrow with uh, EWTN's family celebration also here at the Phoenix Convention Center. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number to call is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd love to hear from you. That number is one 271 And... Um, if you are uh, calling from outside the United States and Canada, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 271 2985 You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, your call screener. Your celebrity call screener today is Mr. Tom Price. And uh, Michael McCall, I'm sure, will be doubling up on the social media efforts for this hour of the program. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can see Colin and I live from the Phoenix Convention Center. And you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Friday, the road warrior, Colin Donovan. How are you? Pretty good. Surviving the road so far. Cozy up there a little bit. Okay. Don't move that. Move you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so you, predominantly, when we have these family celebrations, you are, uh, you are the four-letter word uh, in the Catholic Church. You are, you are the, the liturgist here. Well, more like the sacristan. We pull all the logistics together, and hopefully it's not a total disaster uh, when we turn it over to the clergy and let them do their part. But, <laughs> you know, so it's sort of like radio turning it over yeah. to uh, you, you know that, family uh, celebration. You know, there's that old, that old joke, uh, you know, the difference between a liturgist and a terrorist. You can negotiate with a terrorist. That's, that's right. Well, you know, you can negotiate with us, too. You know, so. so give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Gary writes in, how can I be absolutely certain that God exists? I think he exists, but I don't have the absolute certainty that he exists. I don't believe in the existence of God in the same way I believe in the existence of my parents because I've seen my parents. How can I be certain that God exists? Well, you can find certain natural uh, clues of that. You, you know that God, your children know that you exist because they're the, you're the parents and vice versa. Uh, and you look around the world and you see the immense complexity of it. You see the detail in nature. Uh, and the question that obviously comes to mind is, did this all self-generate? Did it all come from itself? And even if there was a billions in years of, of chemical and then biological evolution uh, as a way of getting there, where did the laws that made that evolution lead to the end that it is? 
uh, ha that it has has arrived at. So I think the the question is the same. There is a parent, and even the uh, even the Greek philosophers understood that there had to be a, a, a initial cause of everything, a cause within which all other causes causes are to be, uh, you know, drawn out of and and have effect in in history, and uh, so. On the natural level, that's the logic. On the supernatural level, no one can produce faith in their soul. So if you haven't gotten down on your knees and you haven't asked for the gift of faith, by which even a natural certainty rises to a supernatural certainty, a reasonable and logical evidence and probability that God exists versus that he doesn't exist, Faith will perfect that and raise it to an, a certainty that is irrefutable. Uh, you can, we can throw that away. We can lose our faith. But that's how you get there. Uh, if you haven't done it, get down on your knees and ask for it. Go into the Catholic Church and sit before the tabernacle and ask for it. That's the way you do it when reason has not brought you to the doorstep. You know, there's kind of an old principle that, that some people, you know, uh, the, the opponents would say that this is, you know, just a cop-out. But it's it's a reality that faith precedes understanding. It, it is right, and theology is not what we believe in. Theology is faith seeking understanding. In other words, we have the faith, and now we seek to understand what it means. So all of that presumes that you have the faith, and that comes as a gift. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Lafay would like to know: Does the Catholic Church? Still teach purgatory. What is the scripture reference? Just this week, my daughter-in-law's family held a prayer vigil to pray for their aunt, dead one year to the day into heaven. Can you please explain this practice? <laughs> well, you you can't pray them into heaven. I guess that's probably a common term Catholics use sometimes. But uh, again, it's beyond our uh, the power of our will to do that. But you can petition and intercede with God to, to admit the uh, to heaven. Uh, the church finds the roots of this in a Jewish practice, and Jews would not say this indicates purgatory, but for the church it does, or at least it points to it. And that is when Judas Maccabeus sent an offerings to the temple to pay for what we would say must have been a venial sin of superstition, his soldiers who carried little... Uh, uh, you know, little go, good luck charms, if you amulets, will, in amulets yeah. into battle. Okay, and so he thought that was maybe the reason that particular individuals died, and so he sent uh, money to pray, have sacrifice offered in the temple for them. And so the Jewish people today, they, they don't see it quite that way, but they have beautiful prayers uh, that are said for the dead uh, without having a theology to say, well, what those prayers are supposed to do necessarily. We have that theology, and we understand that uh, Christ makes it clear that in perfecting justice, justice still has to be done. And I think the, the great example of that he gives himself in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when he says, settle with the judge on your way, lest you get before the judge, and he it has to send you into prison at where you will pay to the last penny. Now, was he talking about the civil court? No, he is the judge. And the only question there is, well, what is he judging if, you know, we're good or we're bad and we go to heaven or hell? Well, in those who are good but not pure, not pure enough in the words of John in his book of Revelation, 
pure to enter the heavenly Jerusalem where only the pure, the perfect, may enter in. Those perfect like the Father, as Jesus also said on the Sermon on the Mount. If you're not quite there, if you need what sometimes Catholics speak of, well, I need a little bit of a polishing and dusting and cleaning up and all of that. Purgatory is the place where that purification is made. And is God purifying us by love, which somehow is a fire, a material fire, even Aquinas uh, alleges, although that's not per se part of the church teaching. And it's in that purification and love. Just think of how you, you're away, we're all away from our spouses. You aren't, of course, but some <laughs> of us are away from our spouses, and you love your spouse, and you have that yearning and that longing to be with them when you're on a trip somewhere. That's the kind of yearning which will be purifying us in the ways that God knows how to purify the soul in purgatory. Uh, it's, it's not a punishment, but it's the finishing of the debt. Now, what debt is there need to be finished? Jesus paid the debt. Jesus paid the thing we cannot pay, and that is the penalty which kept us from seeing the Father, the penalty of hell, that separation from the Father. He settled that question. Confession settles that set, uh, question as well when we receive absolution in the name of Christ by the power Christ gave the church. It settles the eternal debt. But the justice in, that is involved, that we can't pay. You know, we steal something, we can give it back. Maybe we can't give it back. We say bad things about another person, they've died. We can't fix that now. But yet we need to fix it, and we do that by prayer, we do that by our own penance, and if we haven't completed it at the end of life, we do it. That temporal debt that comes from our sin, after Jesus has settled through the sacrament of penance, that debt which he alone can settle, that eternal debt before the Father, we can do, we do what we can do, it's within our human capacity and that's to make reparation for what we ourselves have done. We do it in this life, or we do it in the next. And that's the prison Christ was speaking of, where when the last one is paid, we can come out. Nobody in hell is coming out, so there has to be a third place, and that's purgatory. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Elizabeth in Fredericksburg, Texas, Brent in Falls Church, Virginia, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well at 833-288-3986. And you can always send us an email if you'd rather do that. The email address is openline, all one word, openline at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday, live from the Phoenix Convention Center and the 2022 EWTN Catholic Radio Conference. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, there are lots of ways to spread the gospel, and one way you can spread the gospel is by spreading the news of how people can get in contact with EWTN. 
and let us do the heavy lifting. We'll give you everything we need, uh, whether it be uh, uh, print material to put in your parish vestibule or bulletin announcements or all sorts of things that we can use to help spread the news about EWTN in your parish. You can become an EWTN media missionary. If you'd like to learn more about that, simply log on to EWTNmissionaries.com and you can help spread the eternal word with us. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. First up today is Elizabeth in Fredericksburg, Texas, listening on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Elizabeth, you're on with Colin Donovan. Oh, hi. Thank you. Um, I was just calling to ask about, um, I'm confused about forgiveness, about how do you know if you have truly forgiven and in the Bible, mm-hmm. I was reading that it said you have to leave your gift at the altar and go and reconcile. And do you have to have that person back in your life, or how does that work? Okay, I, I'm so confused. you're 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 talking about in human relations, not the sacraments necessarily. But how do you, you know, how, how do you do that? Um, well, we have to first look and see what forgiveness is. Somebody has injured us. Well, let's start with God. Uh, Pope John Paul II, in his encyclical on divine mercy, talks about mercy is God's love reaching down to lift the sinner out of his misery. So what we do is we have to be merciful to somebody maybe who has injured us. Now, we can't do what God does, but we can love them. And what is to love a person? That is to will their good. First of all, their supernatural good, salvation, heaven, so on but also even their material good, because we're spiritual material creatures. It's very hard, if impossible, to separate the spiritual and the material good of the individual. So you'll know you've forgiven if you are able to will the good of the other, because that is love. To wish them no injury, to wish them the greatest good, which is God himself, to desire for them uh, those good things which will benefit them in this life and get them to heaven. Now, the trouble with forgiving others and being forgiven is that, you know, this old mortal coil of ours, we've got our memory and we have our imagination and we've forgiven and all these things come back. We remember the insult. We remember the difficulty. You know, we we remember the whatever was the cause of this, uh, you know, crisis of of, uh, a friendship or love between us and the other person. That's a temptation. That's not a lack of forgiveness. The devil's going to play with us. Our own human nature, its weakness, is going to play with us. The thing, we know we've conquered that because we we don't accept the invitation to, you know, be angry again anew with the person. But rather, we continue to resist that temptation, and we continue to will their good, especially their uh, supernatural good, and to will their good in all respects. That shows that we love them. The rest of it is going to be temptation, and we're all going to struggle with that, even years after you know, going to confession and, and you know, you know, maybe in anger or destroying somebody's good name or something like that. We can't fix it. Then we've got purgatory, as we were talking about earlier. That, that can get fixed eventually. Uh, but we're always going to be struggling against that temptation to revive the injury and to be, hold a grudge on the injury. And that, that's the thing we resist. And we'll res- resist it as long as uh, we're alive. 
Uh, there's a wonderful story uh, I, I heard uh, uh, back in my days when I was a seminarian, a priest at a retreat, you know, talking about other priests and the temptation that they have, you know, and they were struggling for their priestly purity and all of that. And this uh, wise priest, you know, his answer to that is said, well, you have to keep struggling. Well, when, when Father, when I'll be rele relieved of it? Well, three days after you're dead. And I think that's about it. We're, as long as we are in this world, we're going to have that struggle, and to think that uh, we will be delivered from it entirely is probably utopian. We get to the heights of sanctity, there will be other struggles that we have to deal with uh, spiritually in ourselves and so on. Uh, but for the rest of us, that's the story. Uh, until about three days after we're dead, euphemistically speaking, uh, we'll be dealing with these uh, kinds of mortal issues. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Brent in Falls Church, Virginia, watching us today on YouTube. Hi, Brent. You're on with Colin. Hi, Colin. My question is, when does the Church consider alcohol consumption to be a mortal sin? I know that Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine, so I assume you can consume one, and Jesus is not going to be uh, upset with that, but yeah. when does it become something that the Church would con not condone? Sure. Well... Why, why are you looking at me like that? No, I, I didn't. I am now because you brought the subject <laughs> up yourself, <laughs> instead of benign neglect. Um, the things which God has made uh, that are, you know, edible and drinkable, uh, these are these are good things. Um, you know, we see how Noah was uh, the first one who uh, fall victim to the grape, so to speak, uh, and his son treated him gently, backing up to cover him his nakedness so he, he wouldn't uh, r remove the, the dignity of his father by see, seeing him in that state. So this is something that we're going to struggle with. But here, here is the rule, and it's pretty much an individual rule. Um, I, I know of a priest, a, a Jesuit priest, who did a lot of research on alcoholism, and he discovered, and this was, I think, early on in the scientific uh, looking at this issue, and much well before all of the genetic studies that can tell you exactly everything practically there is to know about you, you know, in your capacity for this or that or the other thing. Uh, and it, he found that in, in cultures where you had beer in the Germanic countries or wine in the Mediterranean countries, they developed a tolerance for that. But in Scandinavia and among the Eskimos and others across the northern latitudes, they didn't have that, and they very quickly fall, fell into alcoholism. So he, there, is, there is that sort of genetic predisposition, and there is, well, the individual personal history, the family history that uh, we all of us hold inside of our bodies as, you know, products of our parents' love and they of theirs and so on back, uh, back in time. That being said, what the church finds wrong in the use of alcohol or anything is excess. And so uh, an excess of eating that is gluttonous is, in the case of food, uh, we know that there are diseases that lead the excess in the other, other direction. Uh, but then the monks and the Desert Fathers took upon, you know, very, very little eating as a, as a penitential thing. So there can be pr proper norms there as well. 
So the individual has to find at what point am I offending against the moral law? And what is the guide of the moral law in the human being? Reason. If your reason is impaired that you're not making good moral judgments, oh, I have a few and I'm driving my car crazily, oh, or I have a few and I have this or that, yeah. obviously you're having too many. So we learn ourselves as we grow up, as we are introduced to alcohol consumption, we learn ourselves, you know, what is a so our social limit, if you will. Because when we stop being sociable and we start being sinning against others and against this moral law of temperance, that's when alcohol becomes a sin. And there will be people who can, you know, hold their liquor, but, and this I don't mean in the, in the sense of somebody who can party and not feel it the day next day, but they have a greater tolerance for it without losing the loss of their reason. This is also, by the way, this, the, the sin involved in drug use. Instead of that, you know, sort of slow climb to lack of reasoning ability, drug use will often throw you into it immediately by a single use. And so this is why the drugs that are illegal and forbidden and cause problems in family and society typically are those that almost instantly, in some way, relieves the ability to morally reason about the acts that we do. And before God, that's the offense. Now, our bodies will also take offense, but before God, the offense is the inability to reason in making our moral act, decisions about moral acts, all of which ought to have God in view and the virtues which God desires of us in view. That's when you know you've reached your limit, and that's where you know you can't go there again. Uh, next up is Darius in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Darius, you're on with Colin Donovan. Oh, hey, hello. Hey there, Darius. What's your question? Okay, well, um, I've been uh, doing my history uh, on the Catholic religion. I've been listening to you guys every day, and... Uh, I, I grew up Baptist, but uh, after hearing you guys, I just feel like uh, feel like uh, the Catholic religion is a, is a lot more uh, stable and and just uh, pretty pretty much more legitimate as, as far as like you can be uh, when you're talking about uh, faith and spirituality. But um, I'm, I'm African American myself, mm -hmm. and I know when I break it up to a lot of uh, my peers, uh, they just they just don't understand or they feel like the Catholic uh, religion. Is, is just for a certain type of people. So I was wondering, uh, mm -hmm. what what do you guys got to say about that? And or, or do you have anything that I could uh, tell someone, uh, sure. you know, who, who, who's, who's basically saying that? Yeah, and and I think there there's there's a lot of a lot of history there that we can recount, and probably going to run past the bottom of the hour. So I'll, I'll just sort of get uh, get into it a little bit. If you look at the world today, the most vibrant faith is in Africa. Uh, and in places in Asia where it's uh, where it's it's really going to, so it's it's not an ethnic thing, it's not a racial thing, it's uh, it's a it's a disposition to do all that God wants us to do, 
And so there obviously, I think, American history has predisposed uh, perhaps African Americans to, you know, uh, in the South in that, there was the availability of a number of Protestant denominations, and these gave rise because of segregation and persecution into, you know, the like the African uh, was it the Methodist Episcopal and the Baptist, the Black Baptist and different groups. So you ended up with these segregated groups of, of, of African Americans in, in, these, uh, in these religious bodies. So I think the American history is a little bit different than Africans having been evangelized, falling in love with God, falling in love with Jesus and the church. You know, and as I was saying, the, the real burning faith is very often in Africa today. So a little bit after the break, we'll take the, a little, the, the American situation, because there is some really good information on that that I can give you. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We're talking to Darius in Cincinnati, Ohio, Colin, about the... um, you know some of the some of the things that go along with uh, converting to the Catholic faith as an African American in our culture here in America. Right. Yeah. And of course, I know personal experience. You know, uh, Deacon Burke would uh, do a better job, and uh, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, yes, Deacon mm-hmm. Harold, rather. Yeah. So I mean, we have we have individuals in our EWTN family that uh, uh, that can address that directly, and that would be something that to. You know, to maybe listen to some of the programs that they've done, and I don't know if there are any specific ones on that area. But well, I, I mean, your your own Noah Lett did the series with Dr. Greer, Black and Roman true. Catholic. That's true. That's right. Yeah, you know. Noah, who works for me in the theology department. Yeah, that's right. So we have a number of those shows. Uh, good friend of Mother Angelica's, actually, over many many years, would come down here and, and be on with her. So I I think the American context is quite different than, say, in Africa, where uh, just as the American context in any other respect has its peculiarities, uh, and that is uh, the sad fruit of slavery, naturally, uh, is involved in that. Uh, But I, I think when you set aside what individuals did, the church has a pretty good case. The popes in the, I think, beginning in the 12th or 13th century, when Europeans were venturing out of the Mediterranean, they were going to Asia, the Silk Routes and things like that, out of places like Venice, they were, uh, Africa was always available there and so uh, traveling there. The system of slavery started up and the popes immediately condemned it and stated that Uh, you were excommunicated if you did it. Now, when the Portuguese and the Spanish came over to the Americas, that didn't stop them from enslaving people because in every institution, whether it's the Catholics, the Baptists, the Anglicans, the Jews, the Muslims, whatever religious institution it is, it's made up of human beings. So if you're looking for perfection you should have been created an angel at the beginning of time and remain faithful to god and you'd be surrounded by perfection continuously from the moment of your existence uh, 
But here on Earth, uh, in reality, we find that even the best institutions are corrupted. And the U in the U.S., certainly the church did go along with uh, segregation and discrimination uh, a great deal, but was also one of the earliest ones to rebel against that and priests and nuns in the fight for civil rights and so on. I took an interesting course in college, you know, how you take um, an optional course. You're given certain... You have to take a certain amount of core courses, and they're usually in the humanities, sociology, psychology, and things like that. And I took one on the difference uh, called race, class, and power, where the author, where the professor, was well known for uh, his studies on this. This is back in the 60s, uh, his studies, and then in the 70s when I was in school. And looking at the dis dis dispar disparities between uh, the treatment of slaves in South America and, and other Catholic countries and the treatment in North America. The Catholic Church never developed a theology to justify it. As I said, the popes condemned it. Individual sinners perpetuated it. Governments perpetuated it. The Church did not say, oh, yay, slavery. Unfortunately, some other institutions in the world develop theologies, not just in Christianity and others, develop theologies to justify slavery per se and distinctions among human beings uh, based on their race, ethnicity, and so on. The church never did it. So that's, that's sort of the, the historical element of all of that. But the most personal element of this is in your pursuit, study, but pray more than you study. As I told the gentleman earlier, you know, get down on your knees and pray. Go into a Catholic church before the Blessed Sacrament and pray. Yes, do the effort that reason wants to do and you have to do, and that is to work your way through the muddle of your, your feelings and all so on in this matter, and you've heard this, you've heard this. You've got to work your way through those, and everybody who comes to the church, say who's converted out of a Protestant church or even from no faith, they're going to have to deal with those. But the most important thing is to pray because the gift of faith comes from God. Not just the gift of faith in Christ, which you, you have as a Baptist, but also the, the gift of faith with respect to the fact that Jesus established a church, gave the apostles a mission, and somewhere in the world that mission is being carried on. And it's in the only institution that's in continuous existence from that time, and that's the Catholic Church. So that's the factual side of it, but the prayer side is very, very important. Still plenty of time for your calls and a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Robert in the great state of Connecticut, listening on Veritas Radio. Robert, you're on with Colin Donovan. Good evening. Thank you for taking my calls. Mm-hmm. Now, what I'm calling, someone called earlier and said that they don't believe in God because they cannot see him. Mm -hmm. And I think you answered a question, but I think Ian answered um, fully. Because, first of all, what we have to realize when God is a spirit, we are used to thinking in three dimensions. God is not in those dimensions. He's a spirit. And the Word of God says, let's worship Him, must worship Him in spirit, and we've got to connect with God on a spiritual level. And we cannot understand who God, who God is if we are not from man. 
Because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, because they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Say that saying, the young man cannot connect to God if he did not spiritually discern. You know, look at this. I'm you have a question in there somewhere. So far, I, it is a call-in question showed. Somewhere in there, did you have a question? Yes. The question I want to say to you is that you cannot, you, you, you cannot understand God not on the spiritual level of God. You have to understand God from a spiritual point of view, not from a physical point of view. He's yeah. a spirit. Yeah, so he's just following yeah. up on on earlier, but yeah, that, yeah, that that no, that's the that's, objection was that I can't believe in God because I can't see God, right? Yeah, and on the physical level, and that's why it requires the gift of faith. We can't, we will never see God. We can see the effects, and that's why you can come to a natural understanding of the effects of God in creation. The fact that there is order, there is this causality that I talked about. Those are the natural effects, and this is what led the philosophers, such as Aristotle, to conclude using only reason alone, that there must be God. Now, he didn't have idea of a personal being. He didn't have revelation to tell, revelation to tell him who God was, and he certainly was existed before Christ, so he, he didn't, he didn't uh, have Christ. But gift, the, the gift of God strengthens the intellect to believe in him. This is what grace does. That's what the gift of faith does. It strengthens the intellect to believe in something which ultimately we cannot prove, we cannot see, we can't test, we can't make a hypothesis or a theorem about and test it. Uh, but yet we find the constant proofs around us because we see, in a, as you put it, in a spiritual mind, we see all of the th other things in the natural level, which appeal to us that there must be something greater than ourselves, greater even than the universe. And now we believe in this something because it's a someone, and God strengthens us to do that. Now, ultimately, only God understands God. That's one part of this as well, that we, we can have, as you call it, a spiritual mind in order to have faith in God and to see him in that sense of it. But we cannot understand God, and St. Paul makes this clear when he says we see, uh, we see in a mirror darkly. Only the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit understand the divine nature, and only the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit understand the relationship between the divine persons and what a divine person is. The angels who never fell away from him, they don't understand it. But according to their own spiritual capacity, they understand to a point. But only the persons of the Godhead understand the divine nature and each other perfectly. Uh, so we'll never have that, but we'll have, we can be opened up to uh, the, the light of faith that strengthens us to accept the, the reality of the God who we cannot see. Uh, and the best way to do that is, I advise that gentleman, the young man, was to, to pray. Because God has to give this gift. It's nowhere to be found in this world except in the gift of, of, of faith. And for the church, the gift of faith is something that's received in bad baptism. When those who had come to a natural uh, desire to know more about this God whom the apostles preached, what were they told by Peter to do? Repent and believe and be, repent and be baptized. And so natural faith leads to supernatural faith, and in baptism not only is the sin washed away, but the gift of supernatural faith is given. 
that's the where we find the strengthening that's where we go beyond what nature alone and our human uh, possibility of knowing god without his assistance arrives at 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number still time for your phone calls at 833-288-3986 uh here's a here's an email that the answer to which will be of interest to our uh crack call or crack take two with jerry and debbie producer ace mckay who is standing nearby he says could you please explain the teaching of the church regarding men removing their hats during prayer i often work outside and wear a hat for protection since i also try to pray throughout the day is it necessary for me to remove my hat to do so yes well th- th- this is a, a different thing i remember uh the first and, I, and i must say that every day during morning prayer in the radio department Ace McKay removes his fedora. Well, good for him. It's good for him. You know, it's a, the Christian practice is actually different than the Jewish. And I learned this because uh, the house where I lived in Rome was a hop, skip, and a jump from the Camp of Verona, which uh, is the big cemetery of Rome, one of the big ones. And in the Jewish section, uh, there, there, if you go in there, I happen to be in there, and uh, a Jewish man came up to me, and he had a spare kippah, and he said, oh, you must wear this, and he saw I was a Catholic. He saw, he saw I was dressed appropriately for a Roman student, and he, he put it on my head so I could visit the graves in there because they covered their heads uh, with that. Now, that's continued in the church, the, the, the monsignores, the bishops, the, the, the popes, and even the, the, the monks uh, wear uh, a, zucchetto, a little zucchetto, uh, representing their rank in the church and so on. Uh, so we do keep it that way. But in general, it is as he described. We go into a sacred place or in a circumstances which seem sacred to us, like at a ball game when we're singing the national anthem, we take our hats off as a sign of respect. So our custom is a little bit different from the Jewish, but it has the same thing. We're showing either respect for God in the case of praying in the Mass, or we're showing that uh, we have respect for things which fall out of our relationship for God, and that is love of country. By when we're, we're singing the national anthem, we take our hats off. It's a sign of respect. Or in the presence of the dead, uh, you know, when you go and you visit at the, at the, the graveside. Or so it's a, that's, that's what it is. So it's, it's a natural sign of an inner sensibility that we have and and, and religion, not just the Christian religion, but all religions have natural signs of this. And some of them are, have been brought into the church because they're not contrary to the faith in any way. And uh, so I think this is uh, one of them. St. Paul speaks of women covering their heads uh, in church. For women, that developed in a different direction. Uh, in, in, maybe in some sense, keeping what we would take to be na- the naturally. Uh, but obviously it's the interior relationship with God that is important. So if you're saying your rosary uh, and you're walking and you've got your hat on, I would say keep walking, keep your hat on, and keep praying. Uh, but I think in the social context of a sacred place or in circumstances that, that have that kind of sacrality about them of, a, uh, you know, not the ballpark per se, but a, a funeral or the uh, graveside or something like that. It's a very good way of showing, you know, what is in your heart and how you feel about it. 
Be sure to check out The Journey Home. Uh, Monday night, 8 Eastern time, Rocky McCormick shares how discovering church teaching on human dignity led her from Hinduism to Catholicism. That's The Journey Home. Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Uh, Next up is Terry in Fairfax, Virginia, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Terry, you're on with Colin Donovan. Uh, Yes, uh, good afternoon, Colin. Um, I'm calling in reference to a specific sentence in Desiderio Desideravi, the the apostolic letter. I don't know if you have the Vatican version in front of you, so I can point you to that sentence. So, because I'm I'm driving. And anyway, uh, the second sentence of Section 5, uh, when I read it, he says, to be admitted to the feast, all you need is faith. I'm paraphrasing. That's why I was hoping that you could actually read the entire sentence on your monitor, because mm-hmm. um, what I'm interpreting from that is that faith only is necessary to be admitted to the feast, which I think he means communion. Yeah. Um First of all, sort of the theologian's rule here is is you read it in the context not just of the document, uh, but in the context of the whole of what the Church teaches. Um, Cardinal Ratzinger deals with this in the scriptural context in his books on uh, Jesus, his two volumes. And in the introduction of one of them, I think it was the three volumes Jack is telling you, he's more up on this than I am. Uh, He talks about what he calls canonicity. And that is, there is a canon of Scripture, and you can't read Revelation against Genesis, you can't read Malachi against Isaiah or the Gospels. There has to be to understand everything within the whole. And so, if you want to speak of it this way, in the magisterial teaching, there is a canonicity in which it is, you know, it is is a whole picture, it's a tapestry, and that's the context in which you have to understand it. Now, one thing we can say about faith is that faith is the foundation. It's the door to the church. The church says this. Uh, it's the door to the sacraments. It's the door to, to, uh, to God, to the sacraments, and to communion with the hierarchy. The three elements of faith, hope, and charity. Faith is primarily faith of God and God and love of God. And out of that, we can say, yes, it comes with that the obligation of love of neighbor. And comes with that, that is the obligation to believe the teachings of God as the church has proposed them. So the doctrines come at this secondary level. In the case of hope, it's the sacraments. And uh, we we need the sacraments because this is God's will to complete that journey, which we hope leads to him. And in the case of charity, it's, it's the communion of, of Catholics around the Pope and the bishops united with him. And so that's this secondary element of, of the virtue of, of charity. So when you, there's a synthesis there, there's a tapestry there that, ha, that can't be punctured and separated and carved up and you know, picked out of sort of reading in a fundamentalist fashion, either the scripture or the church teaching. So in saying faith is the doorway, it certainly is to all of these things, because from faith, hope, and charity immediately blossom. They're inseparable. Uh, we get that with our baptism and sanctifying grace and all the other things, which, uh, you know, you can, the catechism will tell you comes in that instant. But in, it's sort of like the Holy Trinity is always there. Uh, there is a hierarchy in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is first. The, the Son proceeds from the Father. 
the Holy Spirit proceeds from both, except there is no time, it's in eternity, so you can't even say first, second, third, but it makes the point that there is this complete and unending and eternal unity and flowing out of the Godhead of the Son and the Spirit and, and, and so on from the Father. Likewise, faith is the door to the church and to the sacraments and all of these things in this continuity, but yet we don't say, well, the Son's the Father and the Spirit is the Son and the Father is really the Spirit. No, there's an ordering there. Well, in the ordering of the sacraments, in the ordering of the life of the Christians, the ordering of the church, it's faith. And that's how I would read uh, a line like that, which people have spilled lots of ink over. But I'm wondering if they're doing a canonical reading, to paraphrase uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Ratzinger writing as theologian Ratzinger, a uh, canonical reading of of uh, of a apostolic letter. So I think that's how you have to do it. That's how I, as a theologian, read those kinds of things. And yeah, you can quibble about language and other things, but that's the, the way you read it. The other way is that there is in some way a sense in which when the church speaks about outside the church no salvation, it means that for those who know that Christ is the way of salvation, uh, but they don't know that the church uh, is uh, the instrument and the means, that's the second element, hope. They don't have a right understanding of hope, that it involves the church, it involves the sacraments. That, well, is, does that mean that they're not going to be saved? The church doesn't say that, but it says that invincible ignorance protects them. So they don't know that. Maybe they've been totally dis, dis, uh, disimpressed by, by the Catholics they've known, but they love Jesus, they work for Jesus. Then we can't say that outside the faith, no salvation for them because they haven't fulfilled the moral requirement of knowing they need to be in the church and not joining and refusing God. They know that's what he wants, but they refuse him. They don't refuse him. We don't hold them accountable and guilty for that. Their faith will save them. What about the person outside the church? Well, in a way, they're in an analogous way, but not in a, as clear a way as with the baptized. Uh, the person outside the church also must have a kind of faith. And Pope, uh, blessed Pope Pius IX speaks of this. Uh, in uh, a couple places, but the one encyclical in particular, I think it was to uh, the Italian bishops in the 1860s, when he says, exactly, we all know that the church is the ark of salvation, outside of which there is no salvation, but we also know the infinite mercy of God, that God and to paraphrase him, God, who analyzing the consciences of individuals, who analyzing their good, their goodwill and their desire to please him, and that according to the lights they have, they faithfully follow that. They believe that God is, they faithfully follow him. They may have an idea that they need a redeemer of some kind. There may be an obstacle to them becoming a Christian, or they don't necessarily accept what we say that constitutes and so on, but they have that faith, they have that hope, they have that desire at this some level. God can give it to them outside the church. He can give it supernatural to them. They don't, they don't merit it any more than we do at our baptism. The difference between those people and those in the church is that baptism is the means, but we are supernaturalized by the will of God.
We see that on Pentecost Sunday. We see this with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, that, that he must go down on the waters and be baptized. He insisted on it. We always see that faith is the, the, the perfect door into all that God has revealed and wants for his creatures, for man. And so we can't know how that relates to the person outside the church. And the Pope says, we can trust God to make those decisions, but if he gives faith, and they must have faith, if he gives it outside of the sacraments, and again, they must have supernatural faith to go to heaven, if he gives it outside the sacraments, that's his decision. We can't know that they exist. We can't say, well, why don't I have to worry about people outside the church? We have to evangelize. We've got EWTN to evangelize. The church has, has missionary societies to evangelize. We have to do what we know God tells us to do. And God will make the judgments about everybody else who hasn't satisfied what we know is the perfect way of following him in the church, through the sacraments, through union with the popes and the bishops and each other. So we leave them to God. That's, as Father Mitch liked to say, that's above my pay grade. So we're not going to try to tell him what he does. We know there's a possibility of it, but the certainty of it given from divine revelation is that baptism, the Eucharist, the church, the apostolic authority of the bishops, to whom if you listen, you're listening to Christ, to whom if you reject, you're rejecting Christ. He says it. We know all of that, and that's obliging of us because we know it, and now we must follow it. For those outside, we leave them to God, and that's what we, that's what we, uh, we can do that safely while we're pursuing them ourselves as we're required to do. And Colin, just about a minute and a half left. Alec in South Dakota wants to know how papal infallibility applies to papal encyclicals. Well, it applies to the teaching and the categories of, uh, of teaching it it is. And th some things are infallible, some things are developing, and yet popes teach them because they can. Uh, and uh, Vatican II gives the rule of how to deal with that as the, the number of popes and sort of the weight and the body of those preaching a, teaching a certain uh, uh, approach to something builds up, you start to know that it's becoming a more serious part of the church's teaching. Uh, the infallible things are much easier to identify in things because they're revealed by God, the church has declared they're revealed by God, and so you can, you know, you can find out those. A lot of things in there are just the Pope's talking and teaching, and you make discernments about uh, the implications of the particular elements uh, as to what they really are. Documents are not infallible. It's the teaching within them that is infallible or is on its way to being a firm teaching of the Church. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Tom Price, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to another Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line, live from the Catholic Radio Conference 2022 edition. Uh, family celebration coming up on Saturday. Be sure to check it out here on EWTN Radio. And we'll be back at it with another edition of Open Line Monday on Monday. Thanks for tuning in. God bless. God bless.